This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 178th episode, we discuss the best unique and artistic film of 1927, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, directed by F.W. Murnau, written by Carl Mayer, music by Hugo Riesenfeld, starring George O'Brien as The Man, Janet Gaynor as The Wife, Margaret Livingston as The Woman from the City, Bodil Rosing as The Maid, J. Farrell McDonald as The Photographer, Ralph Sipperly as The Barber, Jane Winton as The Manicure Girl, Arthur Houseman as The Obtrusive Gentleman, and Eddie Boland as The Obliging Gentleman. They were really great descriptive character names back in the day, weren't they? Yes. Recognition for this movie? Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans was released on September 23rd, 1927. Sunrise would win the Academy Award for Unique and Artistic Picture at the first Academy Awards in 1929. It was the first and only film to win the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences Best Picture Award in the category of Artistic Quality of Production, or Unique and Artistic Picture. This was the only year that this award was ever given out. Janet Gaynor won the first Academy Award for Best Actress in a Leading Role for her performance in the film, the award was also for her performances in 1927's Seventh Heaven and 1928's Street Angel. Sunrise would also win for Best Cinematography and was nominated for Best Art Direction. The film's legacy has endured and is now widely considered a masterpiece and one of the greatest films ever made. Many have called it the greatest film of the silent era. In 1989, Sunrise was one of the first 25 films selected by the U.S. Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry. The Academy Film Archive preserved Sunrise in 2004. The 2007 update of the American Film Institute's list of 100 Greatest American Films ranked it at number 82, and the British Film Institute's 2012 Sight and Sound Critics Poll named it the 5th best film in the history of motion pictures, while directors named it the 22nd. Sunrise was included on AFI's 100 Years 100 Passions at number 63, and The Woman from the City was nominated as a villain on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains. Although the original 35mm negative of the original American version of Sunrise was destroyed in the 1937 Fox Vault Fire, a new negative was created from a surviving print. Sunrise currently holds a 98% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 95 score on Metacritic, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, as we begin each week, what is your relationship to this movie? I have none. I had not even, I, other than hearing it once or twice when we would discuss Academy Awards, I never really knew much about this film at all. I have seen it once. It was on, obviously, a list for both Best Picture and for the AFI list that I completed, I think, a year and a half ago, and... I think I saw it during the pandemic because it's pretty widely available. It's kind of out of copyright. And so most places can stick it on somewhere for pretty cheap or free. And so I think right now it's playing on Tubi uh, in America, at least. But either way, 
it's a film that has a large stature within the critic or the historical community, but I'm not sure that the movie-going public at large knows much, if at all, anything about this film. I would agree. I mean, you know, I mean, I think I'm about as knowledgeable about films as a large portion of the public, and I knew nothing about it. And it begs the question, I know we kind of discussed it for about three or four minutes on last week's show, but I would personally advocate for them bringing back the best unique and artistic picture. I think that you could easily set, as far as production budget right now, and you could change the parameter, but small production budget best picture and large production budget best picture, because I think they're trying to accomplish two different things. If we had that, you could have seen, I think 1998 would have been, is that the year? No. Goodwill Hunting was up against Shakespeare in Love, but then you would have gotten Saving Private Ryan and Shakespeare in Love. Yes. So you wouldn't have had some of these major controversies as far as that goes. Well, you're, you're trying to make the Academy make sense. Yes, I want to preserve it. You know how important the Oscars and film and awards and rankings and debate is to us, even though it's an artistic endeavor. And frankly, ranking it is kind of futility in a way. As much as we'd like to place objectivity in what we're doing on this show, at the end of the day, it's still mostly subjective. Pretty much everything is to some extent or to a large extent. And as far as preservation of the Academy and the Oscars and such, I take it that you have not yet uh, read or listened to your audio book of Oscar Wars? No, unfortunately, I haven't gotten quite that far because I've been backlogged with a lot of other projects this summer. Yeah, well, once you get a chance to delve into it, you'll understand how close the Academy has been to blowing up probably half a dozen or more times. That's not shocking. I mean, really, it's just a film promotion board anyway, because that's what the Oscars were, was a way to self-congratulate and promote your movies in the process. Well, it was started by the studio heads who were just looking for an extra way of getting free uh, advertising. It served a large purpose for a long time. There are Idiots like you and myself that care a lot about what wins Best Picture every year, even though nobody else seems to care anymore. It's not the 90s when Titanic or Braveheart or Forrest Gump were winning. I know. I I would just like for it to matter. Okay. I, I understand. I'm just saying that things are changing, and they're changing because the lines between television and film are blurring so much that... It's going to be harder and harder. I mean, it used to be that the Emmys were kind of like the poor child. And quite frankly, when it comes to dramatic parts and such, an Emmy, I think, almost at times has more clout than an Oscar at this point. But I think they're doing two different things. I mean, if you're doing a miniseries, that's one thing. That's just like a longer version of a movie playing the same character and you have a little bit more leeway to really flesh out some of the characteristics and the personality of something. But at the same time, if you're doing a long-form character, let's say Walter White or Tony Soprano or insert major character here, Don Draper, for example, those are much more complicated. They're accomplishing a much different thing because from season to season, you're getting 
entirely, well, I wouldn't say different performances, but an evolution of a character as opposed to most of the ones that are nominated for Best Picture are not in the sequel category because Hollywood, despite its insistence on shoving franchises down the audience's throat, (laughs) certainly doesn't award them. Yeah. So I guess, what is this movie about? Love and enjoying simpler times and appreciation for those simpler times. I guess I went with a more complex narrative. And having never been in a true long-term relationship, it's hard for me to give anything but the rather objective version of this. It appears to me that knowing friends, aunts and uncles, parents, etc., grandparents, that there's often a difficulty in a long-term relationship, remembering sometimes why you love somebody else. I think that even though this movie alludes that they've only been together for a short period of time, that they do, in fact, actually care for one another, but they have to be reminded of that. So while I have some difficulties with the premise of the movie and just kind of buying in on it, it feels quite dated to me in that sense, and we'll eventually get to that when we get to the scoring, I still think there's an element of universality from almost 100 years later where they kind of remind themselves in a way why they were together in the first place. Well, I've been together with your mother now for 35 years, and we were out for dinner last week, and we were just discussing, like, what's your favorite memory? Well, the favorite memories are the simple memories. You know, like when we were first married and we were dirt poor, and the only thing we could afford was cable TV, and they added to our cable network TV land. And they had a dragnet marathon. And we sat and watched dragnet all weekend with popcorn sitting in the middle of winter. It's cold. The house we owned, the windows rattled in the wind. You slept on a blanket at the floor. And she and I sat and watched dragnet for, I don't know, 14, 15 hours over a weekend. And that might have exhausted the entire catalog of dragnet. No, actually it didn't. There's, I mean, Dragnet was on for quite a while. And that was just the 60s version, because there was a 50s version also. Mm. Not to mention radio, which I've listened to all the radio episodes as well. We've had kind of a running dialogue within the family, because we have a enthusiast for silent film, or at least she calls herself that, within the family. Which I find ironic, being that she's the one who's the most loquacious and loud. Fair. But uh, given my difficulties for it, where do you come down on your history with silent film, given this is our first silent film on the show? And I know we're going to have to cover several others. Somewhere back, I want to say it was in either 8th, ninth, 10th grade, on Sunday nights on Wisconsin Public TV, they would show old silent film comedies. And so I watched Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton films. I watched probably dozens of them. And those were the primary ones. And I really loved Safety First with Harold Lloyd hanging from the clock. That's my exposure to silent films. Um, Those are the silent films that I knew. I didn't know too many other silent films or have seen many other. I've seen... 
I think we were at a like a church retreat when I was a teenager or young, you know, junior high, and they had um, oh, which which Chaplin film is it where they're stranded in the cabin and he has to eat his shoestrings? That'd be the Gold Rush. Yeah, we saw the Gold Rush. Now you probably saw the remake because the remastered version of the original 1925 version wasn't done until much more recently because it was another victim of, I think the Fox Volt fire that there was not a existing copy of the original version. There was a remake that Chaplin did in like 37 or something like that. So that's more likely the version that you saw, but I think Sarah and I, when I went and watched it the first time, saw the remastered version somewhere. I want to say it was on what was HBO Max at the time. Okay. And I've seen probably a half dozen Chaplin films at this point. I've seen only one Keaton film because it was on the AFI Top 100 films, The General. I have not seen a Harold Lloyd film to this point. Yeah, well, Harold Lloyd uh, was quite the... uh entrepreneur he took his money from movies and invested it he um developed some land that was an orange grove in florida no no it's what do they call it now beverly hills ah yeah i'm sure he made out quite well on that um he hasn't had to work and i think uh last time i saw was a granddaughter or great-granddaughter was giving an interview and the entire family hasn't had to work ever. Yeah. Must be nice. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't get an or get that a trust fund and I'm sure you probably won't either. No, not likely. Not at this point. But that's okay. Everybody has their own set of problems. As uh, Succession pointed out, even being that wealthy does not make you happy. Yeah, Succession proved that. So how about we give a little bit more background on this particular movie? Do you have our plot summary ready for us? I do. Sunrise, a song of two humans, is a silent film masterpiece directed by F.W. Murnau, released in 1928. The film is known for its innovative storytelling, groundbreaking cinematography, and emotional depth. Set in a rural village, the story revolves around a married couple simply known as The Man and The Wife, played by George O'Brien and Janet Gaynor. The Man is seduced by a mysterious woman from the city, played by Margaret Livingston. The woman convinces the man to murder his wife and run away with her. He ultimately cannot bring himself to go through with it due to his lingering love for his wife. The man becomes remorseful for his intentions and seeks forgiveness from his wife. Later, the man saves his wife from drowning during a storm, symbolizing his redemption and their renewed commitment to each other. Sunrise explores themes of love, temptation, redemption, and the contrast between rural simplicity and urban allure. The film is renowned for its expressionist visual style using intricate camera work, creative lighting, and innovative special effects to convey the character's emotions and the story's themes. Thank you. Did you know? F.W. Murnau hated to use title cards in his films, 
So in Sunrise, the title cards become more and more infrequent as the film progresses and virtually non-existent by the end. Did you know? Many of the superimpositions throughout the film were created in the camera. The camera would shoot one image at the side of the frame, blacking out the rest of the shot, then expose the film. They would put the exposed film back into the camera and shoot again, blocking out the area that already had an image on it. Did you know? Janet Gaynor, who had long flowing hair in real life, wore a rigid wig in the film to remove any sense of alluring sexuality about the wife. It worked. Did you know? <laughs> Although well-received critically, this film did not do well at the box office, which led to the studio reining in Murnau creatively for his next several films. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week, for our 179th episode, we revisit the Best Picture winner of 1976 with Rocky, directed by John Avildsen, written by Sylvester Stallone, music by Bill Conti, starring Sylvester Stallone, Talia Shire, Burt Young, Carl Weathers, and Burgess Meredith. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. So, Dad, best performance is up. Who did you have now? Janet Gaynor. I have her as my best secondary. Uh, I thought she did the best job overall. As far as the actors go, and yes, I mean, there's an element where we've constantly stated that silent films have to be somewhat overacted, although I think that impression is a little bit taken from watching Singing in the Rain too many times. <laughs> But regardless, I thought she was the best actress well, or actor for the film. I didn't really buy George O'Brien that much as the man. He had two kind of extremes and couldn't decide between the two of them sometimes. And so it just kind of came off as mopey, if you ask me. <laughs> okay. But at least her, she had some emotional range during the film that felt more authentic and did a lot more with her facial expression than I thought he did. Even though by the end of the film, in that final sequence, when he's really distraught after the storm and looking for her, I thought he did a lot better. But I, I agree with you. She had a broader range for this film than just about anybody in it. And that's why I kind of went outside of the actors for a lot of the choices for these performances. I thought she did a nice job. She did have a lot broader range and, and portrayed better overall emotions. She had the better part as well. So I had Murnau. Just from a creative standpoint, I think he sets the tone and kind of develops what this actually is. I mean, there's something where it's the script on the page, but how much of a silent film is truly scripted? A lot of this is the visual cues, and so I do think that there was actually a larger amount of creativity and license when it comes to silent films as to how they were created and what they looked like. In this one, I would say he's probably the primary person responsible for how it turned out, and so that's why I go with him for best performance. I had him as secondary performance. All right, so we just flipped it. Yep. And where are we going for most charismatic? I have a feeling we're going to match. I have the cinematographers. Yeah, so do I. Interesting. I thought I'd be out on a limb on that one. No, I, I thought they created a nice visual style 
I was mentioning during the course of watching this with you over lunches the last few days, how much at least advanced camera work they seem to have been able to do for this time and place. And you could kind of see the film eras change a little bit. Yes, I know that the general was right about this time. I want to say it was like 25, 26, 27, that that was made. And for a comedy action film, that was pretty innovative in itself for kind of some of the camera work. But this was stuff that was creating visual effects on top of visual effects. I mean, the the shadow look that we get where the woman from the city is like hanging like one of the angels or the demons on someone's shoulder in the queue of the movie for a 1927 movie. I mean, it looks like it's an overlaid CGI effect and it's not. So that's pretty innovative if you ask me. But they had a lot of other things that I thought as far as the visual cues, yeah, they look kind of cheesy in a modern sense, such as you could really easily tell when there was a backdrop screen that they were projecting a visual image onto. But even so, for the time, that was pretty innovative. It's Charles Rocher and Carl Stross. Correct. And I I think that um, there were a lot of uh, tracking shots, a lot of innovations that were used throughout the 1930s into the 40s that were instrumental. Now, I thought you could see some of the tracks on the floor as they were going along, but there's a really great tracking shot as they're entering the hall of, I want to say it's like the dance club or something. And I thought that was outstanding for the time in which it was done. That was a pretty long tracking shot across a hall, but it caught a lot of things in kind of a panoramic view. So for, again, the time, because you have to judge it against what was capable in that time period. I'm not going to put this in the same category. I would maybe a film I have a little bit higher reverence for, like All Quiet on the Western Front, even though I think they're from kind of really two film eras. But I do think that this is pretty close as far as the visuals to that film. Okay. Let's move to best scene. It's hard to separate a lot of these out, but I'm going to attempt. I think I have about seven down here. So I have kind of the early woman from the city scene, kind of her introduction and then them meeting at night, kind of the seduction of it and that sort of thing. Then I have on the lake, which is where the man tries to kill his wife and then reneges on it. Going to church where he kind of sees the error of his ways and tries to repent. And they kind of come to this mournful, I don't know, forgiveness. It seems awfully quick if you ask me, but okay. (laughs) Uh, Then the taking pictures, which I thought you thought was one of the best scenes of the movie. At least that was the one that I caught you laughing pretty openly on. I have at the carnival where he's chasing the pig and then they're doing the dance number or whatever it is. The storm and then the search, which I'll separate into two scenes. Out of these, what do you think is the best scene? I think it's the uh, search because it had the most emotional impact and made the most impact on me overall. Sure. It's not my favorite scene because I'll get to that in a minute, but it, it struck me the, the full redemption of the film. I mean, I have that as my favorite scene just because of that emotional arc that you kind of arrive at by the end of the film. But 
I thought as far as technical and the best quality scene, just due to the degree of difficulty of controlling or at least making that during the middle of a storm, is the storm scene. There's a lot going on in that, and they have to kind of recreate something somewhat on the fly. And yes, I'm aware that obviously they were on a bit of a soundstage recording part of that because you could see him very minimally rowing in what was a pretty obvious water tank. But, (laughs) you know, at least for the time, that's, again, somewhat innovative to put that level of detail and production value into your film. So I, I think this got away with a few things that weren't available at that point, but kind of pushed the boundary of what was capable in film, as a lot of films were doing by 1927-28. Yeah. So what's your favorite scene? I, uh, I I had the general gist of exploring the city, which really came down to the barber shop, the photo, and chasing the pig. Those three, I had a hard time differentiating them. So I just had a combined exploring the city. They're just sweet scenes that show a level of intimacy between a husband and wife that was lacking before and is missing a lot of times in relationships now. Yeah, just replace the barber shop with Pottery Barn and you have a lot of couples nowadays. (laughs) Yeah. How about a cooking class? Yeah, that works. Yeah. Anyway, most indelible moment. I had the woman from the city. Just because of you continually saying, can't trust those women from the city. Well, you can't. Wow. I mean, you know, they're slinky. You can always tell them. I mean, the only thing missing was the cigar- was the cigarette holder. And she was pretty risque in the film for a 1927 film. Oh, yeah. Like, showed her upper shoulders, her back. Yes, and slipping bra. Yeah. What was yours? The boat scene. The attempted murder. I mean, it, it it was indelible because, to some extent, it was overacted. I mean, he's going from, ah, you know, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde on that boat. I just, well, that's the part that always is burned into my memory. Well, that's another good spot to take our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com backslash Podcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That is the grades we've done so far for all 166 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, Ron Cephas Jones, 66, American actor, was in This Is Us. Luke Cage, Mr. Robot, was a two-time Emmy winner in 2018 and 2020. Terry Funk, 79, American pro wrestler, stuntman, and actor, was in Over the Top, Roadhouse, and Rocky 3 and 4. David Jacobs, 84, American television writer, was the creator of CBS primetime series' Knott's Landings, Dallas, and Paradise. Two Emmy nominations as executive producer of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and Homefront. I don't have much of a personal relationship to either Terry Funk, who was a, 
I guess, legendary wrestler. If you're into that sort of thing, I'm not. But I obviously have seen Rockies three and four. I like Rocky three a lot more than I like Rocky four, but that's beside the point. And while I don't hold much of a personal relationship with David Jacobs, the creation of Dallas at least leads to one somewhat family moment with one of our former exchange students. So, I mean, that's somewhat important where that's touched my life in some way. But I think the person out of these three that I have the most close relationship with is Ron Cephas Jones over the last several years. Uh, This is a guy who really didn't get his break until much later in life. I would say maybe in the last 10 years, he's become kind of more of a mainstay. And obviously his big claim to fame was being the long lost father of Sterling K. Brown's character on This Is Us, who, spoiler alert, passes away after the first season. And so his second Emmy actually came as a guest appearance a couple of years after that. But he has a really great emotional arc during the course of that first season, which I still think is one of the better seasons of television over the last 10 years, especially for network television. I thought it was pretty great. So it's kind of interesting to see this person that you've developed such a closer relationship with, much in the same way that we had someone from Euphoria pass away a couple of weeks ago, all of a sudden kind of just pass away. I didn't even really realize he had been sick for a while at this point, but, uh, it's interesting when you, you recognize people that you know, but wouldn't have otherwise made an association with and remember what they did to touch or have some profound meaning in your life at some point. Because This Is Us was, a, was appointment viewing for me for quite a long time. And I'm kind of sad that the show is over, although I understand they kind of started to run out of ideas by the end. Yeah, and that happens. So we remember these here for their contributions to TV and film with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Best funniest lines. I know you don't have any down and realistically, it's a silent I, film. I know this is going to be a tough category. Anytime we do this, if we do it, it's probably going to be title cards in some capacity. <laughs> okay. So most of them don't make sense out of context. They're not anything profound. That's why I said the writing of this is minimal. But if I'm going to put anything down as a quote, I have one. This song of the man and his wife is of no place in every place. You might hear it anywhere at any time. For wherever the sun rises and sets, in the city's turmoil or under the open sky on the farm, life is much the same. Sometimes bitter, sometimes sweet. With that, if you're ready, we can move it to the Stanley rubric. I'm ready. Okay, SpongeBob. Anyway, let's move it to Legacy first. Would you like to go first or second? Uh, I'll let you go first. I'm going to make this pretty simple. I think the industry recognizes and knows about the film, recognizes its importance. I think from a historical aspect, it's an important film to the industry at large. I don't give it quite full points just because it comes at a time when there were quite a few major movies. So the jazz singer was obvious wings as far as production value was a big one, but it has some significance that whether you recognize it as a best picture winner or not, I do. I think being a primary winner of the first Academy Awards is at least significant in my mind. So I went with a four and a half for the industry. 
But on the public side of it, who knows about this film? I mean, I'm not going to go quite to the level of a zero, but given that I would have no idea except for those propping it up from the industry, from either a critic standpoint or a historian standpoint, as to what the importance of this film was, nor would I have sought it out on my own, I'd just give it a one. So I have a 5.5. I went with a five for the industry, and in part, not just the critics, but the camera work and cinematography that lasted decades and with some of the shots that they were doing. So I wanted the full five for the industry, but I agree with you on the public. I went with a one. So I'm at six. So that's a 5.75 average between the two of us. Impact and significance. Obviously, I think this is a film that has declined in the audience attention over time, but if you're talking in its impact, it's in one of the most significant shifts in filmmaking that we've ever had. So I went with a five for the industry, obviously being on the backing that it had the awards attention. I don't place as much stock in it as you do for that reason, but I still give it at least some extra credit for being up for awards, even though there weren't many films nominated at that time. There were only three in like each category. And having the first best actress is significant. So it has some at least trivial markers on its name. But it was not a well-received film by the public. It was not well attended. We talked about the fact that they had to rein in Murnau. Even though this was his first American film, then the studio basically put the handcuffs on him for a while. And I think this was kind of the last bastion of the the silent film era. So as well as this film does, it already is starting to show peaks of what is to come. Given that we have special sound effects, we have a pre-recorded track that plays with the film as opposed to an orchestra that's in the theater itself. So there are many things that are changing about this at the time that I do feel is significant. I went with a five for the industry. I went with a 2.5, really the median point for the audience for a 7.5 overall. For me, I went with a 4.5 for the industry because even though it had all the reasons you expressed, there were a lot of critics who did not really like it that much. They thought it was kind of inane. So it wasn't as great of a rush to classicness as you would think. And I agree with you 100% on the public. It had some following. It was not a huge following. So the mean on that's 2.5. So I'm at a 7. So that's a 7.25 average between the two of us. I will let you go first on novelty. Okay. Well, it's hard because it's not like I can go back and look and see whether this was completely novel for silent films because I never saw a lot of silent films. In fact, there are a lot of silent films that have been lost to history because the negatives have disappeared or they've been destroyed or whatever. So I'm going by novelty as far as things that it did that were original. I mean, I'm giving it some points for being, you know, the cinematography, the direction, the pace, the set design, um, using soundstage and the intricacy they were talking about with multiple shots or framing shots and such. So I'm going to go with an eight for novelty. 
So for the record, I have the exact same score for pretty much the exact same reasons. It's setting new ground in Hollywood right at the dawn of the talking picture. And a lot of the stuff that is in here as far as a technical aspect was innovative for the time. But let me posit. Are you positing now? Is this the original romantic comedy? This pre-exists City Lights, which is known as a romantic comedy. It pre-exists. It happened one night. I would say some of those are the really early precursors. It could be, although I'd find it difficult to find a lot of hilarity in this. I mean, in the middle scenes, it was kind of. It's more that it's kind of a somewhat unbelievable premise. Well, it's it's romantic and it depends. Are you talking about comedy being situation comedy where you're finding certain events or situations to be absurd? I mean, most people would say that MASH was not real, you know, knee slapper, especially towards the end. But it found humor in the bizarreness, the uniqueness of the war situation and how humans had to endure. And so to that extent, if you're broadening your definition of comedy, I would agree that probably it would be. Well, if you go back to the Greek version of comedy, it's just one with a happy ending. And this has a somewhat happy ending. So in that case, it would be, by technical standards, a romantic comedy. But I think that most people think that there are at least moments of brevity within this. And realistically, other than a few of the explore the city scenes, I wouldn't say that there's a lot. Chasing a pig, sure. The barbershop scene to a degree, maybe. And the picture taking, I could buy as, you know, moments of humor. I know it's somewhat of a stretch, but it's just at least something to discuss so that we have a little bit more than, yeah, I agree with your aid. Okay. But again, you know, if you're going to talk about, you know, comedy being a happy ending, you pay extra for that on the internet, Cotton. I sure do like pumpkins. Do you want to do the math on this one? Hmm. Is it eight? I believe it is. Yes. Oh, okay. Classicness. Go ahead. Well, it's a little dated. Yeah. The premise was dated. Yes. The fact that the guy is choking the woman in the city at the end. I mean, his physical strength, his power, his dominance over her was cringy at this point in time. So it's so I think I think it's lost some of its classicness. So I went with a six point five for classicness because of some of those scenes. Boy, you're much more forgiving than I am. I'm taking it in the context of 1927, though, too. But I don't know if that's what this category is supposed to be about. I mean, we're going to criticize Gone with the Wind when it comes up for its ill classicness because we're judging it through a modern lens instead of by 1939 standards. Even in 19, and this is a point we'll make when I we do it, even in 1939, there were a lot of people who were ticked off about it because they thought it was romanticizing the Confederacy. And here's the other part of it I have to make about it is, is I'm not sure you've ever brought up that you judge the classicness of something by the time period in which it came out. So that would be throwing a new factor in at film 167 on the list. Now, it's... It's a factor. I don't really talk about it. It's kind of one of those, if I go, I can go this way or I can go this way. 
And if I go this, this way, I'm taking into account the time frame in which it was done. It's not a major factor in this decision, but that's where I am on it because of the circumstances. So give me your number. And that's fine. I'll, I'll just give you my reasoning first. So I find the premise in a way to be somewhat unbelievable. Not that a man would cheat on his wife and then potentially want to commit murder and think better of it or whatever else. I mean, all of that stuff seems commonplace. I mean, we, we've seen that for years on every cop procedural for the last 30 years. It's a tale almost as old as time. Man decides that he doesn't love his wife anymore, but doesn't want to give away half his shit. So the premise that I have trouble with is when she realizes that he's trying to kill her and she doesn't jump out of the boat or try and swim or whatever, she just kind of like cowers and then recognizes he's not going to kill her. And then she runs away. Why wouldn't she like try and have somebody try and help her or whatever? I just don't buy that you would be so forgiving so immediately for someone who tried to kill you. It just doesn't oh, make sense. You're, you're coming at this from a modern age because for my generation, it was a huge deal the first time a woman tried to have her husband charged with rape because it was the common principle that you could not rape your wife. Thank you, Donald Trump. I, I'm just, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just telling you, I remember when those start, when some of those cases started coming out and the concept about that, that it was not just, you know, if the wife's wasn't fulfilling her duty, the husband could take that duty. And that was a mentality of that generation before me. Okay, but that's still short of murder. Well, I understand, but I, but again, she's a mild-mannered woman from, married woman from the country who lacks supposedly some level of sophistication. If she goes to the police, are they going to believe her? I know, suppose. So I, mean, I don't think I don't think it's as far fetched as you're making it believe, given the circumstances and the time period. Add in some of the historical context, sure, I'd be able to give that to you. But I also think this is a rather toxic relationship. I mean, yes, there's affection there, but the minute that a woman comes by to potentially manicure his nails, she's I don't know beside herself. And the minute some other guy brushes elbows with her, he threatens another guy and takes a swipe at him with a deadly weapon. And I know historical context would dictate that this was pretty normal for the time, but my goodness, that just ages terribly. <laughs> so if seven is the baseline, and I gave it points for a lot of the technical standpoints that hold up over time. I'm going to go with a five. I, I have to give it some dings for what I consider things that have aged poorly, because even movies from 10 years later are just a little bit better in classicness, and I hold them in a little bit more high esteem. You get really extra points for being older and being a fairly classic movie like All Quiet on the Western Front or The Wizard of Oz or something else, but when you just age poorly, I also have to hold it against you. So maybe it's a higher curve. But that's just where I'm at. So that would be a 5.75 average between the two of us. 
go ahead on rewatchability. It's a film that if somebody ever says something about it or has some interest, I'll rewatch it. But that's about the extent of it. I'm not going to go out of my way to rewatch it. The fact is, I've seen it, and that's enough. At that point, to me, that's a three. Okay, and I'm not too far off. I guess you're, you, that would be the extra half for each of these that you'd leave it on or that you'd put it on on your own. I just don't think that I'm seeking to put this on on my own. I don't know when it would come up in context. The audience of people who would be interested in this type of film is extremely limited, even among the like film enthusiasts that I sometimes hang out with. I just can't see them really being into something like this. It stretches the imagination when I ask them to watch 1940s films, let alone, you know, a lot of what they're picking is like 1970 or later. I know. I just think that that's not going to be something that I'm going to seek out to put out on my own. I can't imagine that we're going to probably do much to revisit this film. It's not one that I enjoy watching to put on on my own. So I went with a one for putting it on on my own. I went with a 1.5 to leave it on just because I want to give it some credit, but I had a 2.5. So that would be a 2.75 average between the two of us. For our audience score, we had an 87% for Google users and a 92% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.95 overall. So to recap the categories, we had a 5.75 for Legacy, a 7.25 for Impact and Significance, an 8 for novelty, 5.75 average for classicness, a 2.75 for rewatchability, and an 8.95, giving us a final total of... 38.45. And placing it on our list between The Waterboy and The Terminator. (laughs) Okay, yeah, we certainly have the eclectic list, do we not? Absolutely. Remaining questions for this one, I really don't have a lot, but since, again, this is the first silent film that we've discussed, and our purview on this is a little bit limited, maybe this question is jumping the gun a bit, but is this the best silent film ever made? Best silent film I've seen. Well, I mean, you've seen a lot more than I have. Well, I mean, I saw all of them, but there were comedies, and some of the innovative, but it's been a lot of years since I've seen them too. So that's fair. I found the general to be a lot more likable than this film, but that being said, I'm not a huge Chaplin fan. I preferred Keaton in at least the one time that I saw him by that standpoint, I would probably put it maybe number two on my list of the era, but I think it's a little bit premature to probably have this discussion yet. My other one and. This is kind of the question I raise every time a silent film comes up, particularly in the context of the enthusiast that uh, I share parents with. Does sound give an extra layer of dimension to a film? I mean, I know we've had multiple sound categories. We have in the Oscars best sound for a reason. And we've already talked about how Christopher Nolan films are indecipherable sometimes because he doesn't do any great sound mixing on them. I just have a hard time because there is something lost when spoken word isn't capable, at least for me. And that element does add something that's necessary in the storytelling for it to somewhat hold my interest. I mean, I hate to put it that way as as a film enthusiast, 
who's gone back and tried to be as well-rounded as possible. That's part of my difficulty with these films. For me, I don't know. It's it's hard. You know, I, I know for a fact that when I've seen a film, because we'll watch a lot of the foreign films for our Academy Awards show, I've watched the film with subtitles, and I've watched the film with sound dubbing. And for me, the film's dubbing has much more impact than the subtitles because it's not distracting. But that doesn't mean anything really in this context because I've only seen it with some of the sound enhancements. I haven't seen it with anything more or with just nothing. So it's very difficult for me to say one way or the other how it helps or doesn't help. I mean, I always remember the scene... I heard a, or I read a Hitchcock interview where he talked about one of his favorite scenes in movies. And it was the scene with James Stewart and the man who knew too much, the second version, uh, 54, I believe. I believe 55. And he's walking down the street to get to Ambrose Chapel. It's just him walking, and he thinks he's being followed. And you just see him walking, and it's just his footsteps on the cobblestone. And Hitchcock says, you don't have to have an an entire line or have a single line to convey what's going on in this scene. It's all visual. And to some extent, silent film has that advantage. Film is a visual art. And the sound enhances, but sometimes the sound also detracts because you're not paying attention to the the screen itself and to the facial expressions and the micro expressions and such that are being conveyed. Any remaining thoughts for the week? You and I were talking about it on our way back from dinner before recording. I'm amazed at how permeated in society Oppenheimer has become. When this was announced, I think I had made mention that I thought it was going to be big. And you, your comment was, is, yeah, how is this going to be big? It's a biopic about a guy most people had never heard of. And I don't know. What's it going to have? It's got a chance for a billion dollars? I mean, it's got an outside shot. Right now, it's not even at the $750 million mark from what I've seen but it's probably going to get past that over the weekend. And it's the number four film of the year. It's the highest grossing film to have never reached number one at, on any weekend. Barbie's already, I believe, the number one film of the entire year. It's going to easily surpass Super Mario Brothers in domestic spending. It's only really trying to catch it in foreign. And I think it's probably going to comfortably get over 1.5. The question will be is if Oppenheimer can first beat Guardians of the Galaxy, which I think by itself would be an achievement, and then if it can hit the billion-dollar mark. Because if it hits the billion-dollar mark as that movie, that's a movie that Universal took a real shot on. And right now, Nolan is a free agent, more or less. He took a one-picture deal with Universal to do this film because he basically canceled his contract at Warner's after the whole debacle with the pandemic and throwing all their uh, content up on streaming right away. Because obviously he's a very huge proponent in the theater experience and saving cinema in the theater. Yeah. But if he can say that I had Oppenheimer and right now 
I think by most critics' estimation, now it doesn't have like great competition because I don't think people would consider Barbie like a best picture favorite. It's an outside shot to get a nomination, but I would say in the clubhouse, Killian Murphy might be best actor, Robert Downey might be best supporting actor, and Oppenheimer might be best picture, Nolan might be best director. I mean, that's the type of level we're talking about right now. Now, again, mind you, Dune 2 hasn't come out, we haven't seen Maestro, Killers of the Flower Moon. I know there's another big film, I think it's called Past Lives, that just came out on VOD by uh, an Asian director that I guess has been making waves in like the small cinema groups that I hang out with on X. But other than that, like we haven't seen a lot of the stuff that would come out during the festivals. And right now we'd be at the point in the year where we'd be talking about the Toronto Film Festival and Venice and Telluride. And we're just not going to get that because of the strikes. So this is going to be a weird year as far as the awards go. And it's possible. I really hope that if a bunch of their movies get pulled or pushed till sometime next year, that Oppenheimer doesn't mistakenly get some type of asterisk next to its name for winning. But, you know, this has got to probably be the overwhelming favorite at the moment. Yeah, probably, I guess. So that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Yo, Adrian, I did it! Next week, for our 179th episode, we revisit the Best Picture winner of 1976 with Rocky. Directed by John Abeldson, written by Sylvester Stallone, music by Bill Conti, starring Sylvester Stallone, Talia Shire, Burt Young, Carl Weathers, and Burgess Meredith. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 